We started this series last week that we're calling Ordinary Men, Extraordinary Mission. And it's a series all about the disciples of Jesus Christ. I believe that if we want to learn how to walk like Jesus walked and be the presence of Jesus Christ in our world, who better to learn from than the men who walked with him for three and a half years? Because we're focusing on these 12 men and looking at the lives they lived and how they <coughs> in those lives and learning principles from them that we can then apply to our lives as we seek to follow Jesus Christ and live for him in our world. Now, if I could summarize everything I said to you last week, and this is our, a two-part introduction. This is the second part of our two-part introduction this morning to this series. If I could summarize everything we talked about last Sunday morning, I could put it in one phrase. Uh, God's favorite instruments are nobodies. Yeah. God's favorite instruments are nobodies. God takes great pleasure, great, great pleasure, in using those, those who the world would never notice. And even if they did notice, would never expect any great work to come from those people. And there is a specific reason why God operates in that way. And we talked about this, as a matter of fact, at 9.30 this morning. Uh, God does not want any person to boast in the work that they're called to do. Amen. Uh, God wants the glory to go where it rightfully, be- rightfully belongs, and that's to him. And so God chooses nobody so that the glory might be his, and so it might not be given to any human instrument. He chooses nobodies so that no one would ever think that a work of God could be done in the power of mankind, which, by the way, it can't. God is, God's work wants us to fully understand that whenever a work is done, it is done because God is working through that person to accomplish that work. So God's strategy completely eliminates any person taking pride in the work that is accomplished. And by the way, that's why so many believers don't want to serve Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Because as we've said many, many times, every human being on this earth, every human being ever born, carries a certain amount of pride with them. Now that will vary, the level of that pride will vary with individuals, but every human being is characterized by pride to some degree. Amen. And almost without fail, we'll seek to find some glory in whatever it is that we do. And if we can't find some credit for the work that we're doing, many people simply won't do the work. They want some sort of credit before they do it. And so many believers simply choose not to serve God because of the fact they can't find some glory in themselves for the work that they're going to do. We've got to understand something. Uh, From the outset, God has designed his work to be done in just that way. God wants his work done in the way that only he can get the glory from it. And the positive side to that, folks, what I take great glory in myself this morning, is if that's how God works, God can use nobody to get his work done. Amen. God can use anybody to get his work done. Uh, We are all qualified to do that work. God can use anybody in this room, nobody in this place or watching this morning. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, nobody is disqualified from doing the work. Amen. We are all qualified, and please don't take offense <laughs> to this. We are all qualified because we all are nobodies. <laughs> That's who we are, and therefore we qualify. God's program leaves none of us out. And what we see in the life of the disciples is that except for Judas Iscariot, especially uh, toward the end of his time with the Lord, none of them sought glory for themselves. Now again, like all humans, they struggled with pride. We're going to see that as we go through this message this morning. They were arrogant at times. But for the most part, what motivated these men above everything else to serve the way they did was the passion to see Jesus Christ get the glory from the work that they did. And it was that passion and not any skill of their own that led them to do incredible work that they did and left a permanent mark on this world for all generations since. Now last week we uh, concluded our message by looking at two aspects of the work that the disciples were called to do. We considered the timing of their work and we also considered the twelve that God called to do the work. I'd like for us to begin this morning by considering another aspect of that work. We're going to consider the teacher, the teacher of the work that they did. Now, I want to review this with you for a moment. 
The point at which Jesus Christ chose his disciples was a time when the resistance to his ministry was the greatest. Jesus Christ came to ruffle the feathers of the religious establishment, and he was very successful in doing that work. And as a result, Jesus Christ chose these 12 men when it became quite clear that soon the leaders of that, of that day were going to be calling for his death. He saw that day coming. He knew it was coming. And he was aware there was only so much more he was going to be able to do before the religious leaders stopped him from doing it. Until they decided they simply couldn't allow him to promote this message anymore uh, and stop him from giving out that message. And so with that uh, awareness, the focus of the Lord's ministry changed. His primary goal now became to train these twelve to continue the ministry and promote the message once he was no longer there. Now, how did he choose them? Well, we looked at this last week. I read it to you again this morning. I'd like you to look at it right now, if you would. Go back to Luke chapter 6 again and look at verse 12. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Here's how he chose these men. Please note this morning. Luke 6, 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray. He went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. You see what went on there? The first thing Jesus Christ did before he chose these twelve, he got alone by himself with the Father and he prayed. Now, that was not an unusual thing for him to do. Uh, back in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, the Bible tells us he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. Jesus Christ made it a habit, a regular habit, of getting off by himself and spending time with his Father in prayer. We understand the human side of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course this is always a difficult thing to understand, but Jesus Christ was 100% human as well as 100% God. And the 100% human side of him was under great pressure as he conducted his ministry. He knew the only way to deal with that pressure was to spend significant time alone in prayer to the Father. We see that same activity the night before his crucifixion. He got alone in the Garden of Gethsemane and sought the Father's will and expressed his dedication to the will of the Father, even with what he was facing. In fact, it's interesting, when Judas decided to betray him, he knew right where to lead the soldiers. He knew where Jesus Christ was. He knew Jesus Christ had dedicated himself to prayer in that garden. He knew who to find him there in that garden praying. And so now, prior to finding these, uh, selecting these uh, apostles, we find him on a mountain praying. As a man, Jesus Christ is feeling the pressure of this situation. He could sense the rising hostility against him. He knew it would not be long before they would take him. He knew soon his death was going to become a reality. He felt the gravity of making this great decision, of making the right choices, of choosing just the right men to continue the work once he was no longer here. And so he goes and he prays. He seeks the Father's face. He seeks God's wisdom, which was necessary for him to make the right choice. He knew that the salvation of all the world was dependent upon him choosing just the right men to take on the ministry that he has started. Amen. And I want you to notice again, if you would, in those verses I read to you, this was not a quick couple sentence prayer. The Bible tells us in those days he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Amen. He spent 10 to 12 hours that night in prayer to the Father. And here we see an amazing event unfold. Because here you have the entire Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, communing together about this decision. Amen. The Son praying to the Father through the Spirit of God. Yeah. All the Godhead meeting together to provide the guidance necessary to choose just the right 12 apostles. Don't miss the significance of that, folks. 
This decision was of such importance that the entire Godhead came together and spent 10 to 12 hours communing together so the right choice would be made. Talk about an executive level meeting. (laughs) All three together. Now, before we move on, I want to stop. I want to ask you a question. When you have a decision to be made, when you have an important decision in your life that has great consequence attached to it, what is the first thing you do? Uh, Do you check with some uh, authority? Uh, Do you check with family and friends? Do you talk to some self-proclaimed expert? Do you go online and find information that you need to make that decision? I'm going to make a point to you that is all too obvious, but it needs to be reinforced in our minds. If the Lord Jesus Christ saw the need to spend 10 to 12 hours in prayer before making this decision, if Jesus Christ valued prayer that much, does it not make sense that we also should follow the same pattern before making any decision in our lives? Amen. So often when we're faced with a choice, when we're faced with some decision to make, we are prone perhaps to send up a quick prayer or maybe not even pray at all and then decide for ourselves what we think needs to be done. And we may deny this because that doesn't sound too spiritual, but I think sometimes we don't pray for the very reason that we don't want God getting in the way of what we want to do. Uh We're afraid we're going to pray. He's going to tell us something different than what I've already planned. And so I just keep him out of it. I think we don't pray sometimes because we're accustomed to doing things without his help. I think we don't pray sometimes because it takes too much time and too much energy to seek God's face. We want to get on with our own plans. And I think sometimes we don't pray simply because it just never crosses our mind to do it. Here's Paul's instruction in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. That verse says, in everything. Now, I checked. You know what the Greek says about that, those two words? If you get, go to the Greek, you know what those two words mean in the Greek? Everything. <laughs> everything. He says, in everything, let your requests be made known unto God. Everything. Everything. I remember years ago, and of course, this has been a while back, but I remember our washer broke. And Sam and I prayed about that washer. Lord, what would you have us to do? Get a new one? Get the thing fixed? What what would you have us to do? Now, you say that's ridiculous. No, the Bible says in everything. (laughs) So it's everything. Uh, Your life and my life should be surrounded in prayer to the Father. Every decision should be bathed in prayer. We should make no decision without talking to him first. Because I'm going to tell you something, folks. He has a plan for everything. And if I don't check him out, I'll miss his plan in that particular thing. And I'll be off base in that. You see, the question is not, should I pray about this? The question rather is, have I prayed enough about this? <laughs> That's the difference. If the all-knowing Godhead took 12 hours before making a decision about the apostles, we who have limited knowledge should spend much more time than that in prayer before making any decision. God has given us this great resource of prayer. It is truly the wise person who makes use of that which God has given to them. Now, notice verse 13 again. It says that, and when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. He prays all night long, and then Jesus Christ returns back to where the disciples are, and he calls them. Now, I want you to notice the verse again. He says, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. There were many more there in that group. There were many disciples there. From that group, Jesus Christ chose twelve to be the specific ones who would follow him in a more close way. And I want to make clear, in in case someone's not aware of it, folks, please hear me this morning. A disciple of Jesus Christ is a follower. 
He's a follower. He or she is a follower. A disciple is not simply one who believes. A disciple is one who chooses to learn and to grow and to develop his or her walk in the Lord so that they might look more and more and more like Jesus Christ. We can put it this way. A disciple is one who allows, who decides to allow Jesus Christ, or rather to allow God, uh, to produce himself in the life of that believer. A disciple is one who decides to allow God to reproduce himself in the life of that believer. It is that one who truly commits and fully commits and allows nothing to interfere with living the life outwardly that God has created inwardly. A disciple of Jesus Christ is that one who allows the presence of Jesus Christ to be fully manifested in their world. So all disciples are believers, but not all believers are disciples. Uh, some believers choose to trust Jesus Christ, as I mentioned to you last week, uh, as fire insurance. They get saved, but that's all they want to do with him. Just get me out of hell and I'm good. Well, that person is a believer. They are not a disciple. They are not a follower. And that's, that's, if that's their choice, they can do that. They'll get to heaven. They'll just miss the entire purpose of them being on earth while God wants to use them in this place. All believers are saved, but not all believers are fulfilling the purpose of their salvation. And what is clear to me, folks, is that God does not do his primary work through believers. God does not do his primary work through believers. God does his primary work through disciples. God does his primary work for those who will put everything aside and follow him. That's who God does the work through. So, again, a believer is a believer. Praise God they're saved. But if that's all they are, God will never use them for the purpose for which he saved them while they're on this earth. God does his primary work through disciples. And what we see as we look at the Lord's ministry, he gathered a multitude of followers based on a great deal, based a great deal, rather, on the miracles that he did. What we also see is as Jesus Christ further identified what it truly meant to be a disciple, when he showed them it was not all glitz and glory, when he showed those in the multitude the price that they were going to have to pay to follow him and be a true disciple, many decided it simply wasn't worth it and kind of drifted away. As we already mentioned, and as we'll see as we go through this study, discipleship is a costly venture. To be a true disciple of Jesus Christ means it's going to cost you in terms of reputation. It's going to cost you in terms of freedom. It's going to cost you in terms of friendship. It's going to cost you in all kinds of ways. When we choose to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to lose the people that you thought were really close to you. I've experienced that myself. When God calls you to do something, are there folks around you who don't understand the call and simply choose to drift away from you as a result? People, you never expected to do that. <laughs> But they'll do it because they don't understand the call that God's put upon you. And so when God, Jesus Christ speaks about the particulars of discipleship, when he starts talking about bearing our cross and facing opposition and letting go of the comforts of this life to be a disciple, as he started talking about those things, many decided that they had better things to do. Uh, I've got something on the, on the stove I need to take care of. And in reality, in that sense, unfortunately, uh, nothing has changed from the first century to the 21st century. As much as we would hope that we have learned differently, as we have become wiser and more enlightened in this modern age, the same thing happens every day in churches all over America. Many believers want to be a part of what God is doing when it's exciting, when there's something to be gained, when there's some fame connected to it. But when it begins to cost them something, when people begin to lose things because of their discipleship, when reputations are tarnished and friendships dissolve, many simply turn away. It happens every day in churches all over America. 
It's no longer fun because it hurts. It hurts. And people decide that discipleship just may be good for the, the super spiritual, but it just isn't really for them. And so John, John 66, uh, 666 says this. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And so Jesus Christ turns and asks the questions to, to the 12 in verse 67. Will ye also go away? <laughs> All these folks have left. Jesus Christ turns to the 12 and says, will you also go away? And those 12 did not go away. And those 12 did not go away because they had been sovereignly chosen by God to be the 12 apostles. Jesus Christ, through prayer to the Father, had chosen these 12 apostles. Those who would be committed to the work, those who would catch the division of the ministry, those who would not allow themselves to be distracted by the cost of discipleship. He called 12 men who would be drawn to the mission of discipleship. And so Jesus Christ says, will you also go away? And Peter steps up in verse 68 and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? (laughs) Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Peter says, I know they're all leaving, but I've got my priorities straight. I know the one thing that's important in life is serving God to the purpose of eternal life. Now, I'm going to stay there, Peter says. And the disciples followed along as a result. They had their priorities right. They knew the message was from Jesus Christ. And that message that they proclaimed far outweighed any cost to following him. That's what makes a disciple. That's what makes a disciple. When a person catches the vision, when they understand the basis of their own salvation, when they see the overwhelming need for others to hear of that same salvation, listen to me, cost is no longer an issue. doesn't matter anymore. The focus is no longer on my discomfort, but rather it is placed on the words of Jesus Christ reaching the ears of lost men and women. The message of Jesus Christ that they, they proclaimed far outweighed any cost to following him. Is that where you're at today, folks? Is the cost okay because you're proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ? You see, what they're saying here is uh, far outweighed. When they compare the two together, we're going to pay this price to serve him. We're going to give out the news of eternal life to everybody who needs it. What's the difference? Oh, it's outweighed greatly by the message. Is that where you're at today? If not... You may be a believer. You're not a disciple. You're not a disciple. Until we get our priorities right and realize the cost is worth it, we will never be a disciple of Jesus Christ. When that person catches the vision, uh, that's when they begin to follow, and God's work is done through them as a result. So if we're going to catch the vision that the disciples caught, if we're ever going to be true followers, faithful followers of Jesus Christ, we must get a hold of that and live that thing out every day that God calls us to do it. So Jesus Christ calls out these 12 men who are up to that point simply faces in the crowd and he makes them a part of this group of 12. And notice, if you would, there were 12 apostles, just like there were 12 tribes of Israel. The connection is clear. The apostles are sent first to Israel with a message of the Messiah. And they represent a new covenant to that nation. And they are sent as leaders to give the word of this new covenant. These 12 apostles are evidence that God has not yet done with his people, that the kingdom is still possible if the nation of Israel will receive the message that Jesus Christ proclaims. And these 12 men, these 12 apostles, were the ones chosen to make that message known. So from all the apostles that were following Jesus Christ, disciples rather, that were following Jesus Christ at that time, God chooses 12 uh, to be that select group. Look at verse 13 again. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. These men are more than just disciples. 
They are apostles. They are sent ones. They are ambassadors. They are the official representatives of God and as deliverers of the message that he has for the entire world. Those men that God chose came with the authority of God and exercised that authority under his command. I want to back you up. Twelve ordinary men given the power of God and the message of God and the authority of God to the people that God sent them to. Just faces in the crowd, but called to be God's disciples, God to be called to be God's delegates, representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and called to present the message of his kingdom to the entire world. And that takes us to the next thing I'd like you to see this morning in the work that they were called to, the next aspect of the work the disciples were called to. I want us to consider the task, the task. As the delegates of God, they would speak with the same authority as the one who sent them. Hold your hand there, Luke, if you would, and go to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, and look at verse 14. Mark chapter 3, 14, as, again, another account of God calling, of Jesus Christ calling his disciples. It says in chapter uh, 3, verse 14 of the book of Mark, And he ordained twelve, that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach. Notice there's a two-step two process to get in to be what God needed them to be. Before they were sent out to preach, they were pulled in. They had to spend some time with Jesus Christ before they could go out and do the task that they were called to do. If you read through Luke chapter 6 and Luke chapter 9, what we find is once he called them, he began systematically to give them more power and to assign them to new tasks to fulfill. And what we also find is that our Lord's ministry became more focused on the apostles and less focused on the crowd. His ministry becomes more intimate as he develops the skills and the character in these fellows he called uh, to do the work he's called them to. What we find here also is there's a progression in their training in the full-time ministry. And the reason for that is clear. These men had been given a unique responsibility, one that had an impact on every generation uh, since they began their work. Consider that everything they spoke was given to them by the revelation of God. Just think about that. Every time they spoke in ministry, everything they said was given to them by the revelation of God. God was telling them things he was telling nobody else. And so these 12 ordinary men became the source of all true church doctrine at that time. Until the New Testament was completed, these men would be the only source of truth that the world would ever hear. And they would speak with the same authority that the word of God has for us today. Hold your hand there again. You're in Luke. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. And look at verse 11. Very familiar words of Paul in the New Testament, but he's telling us what the apostles were called to do. I'd like us to see it this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 11. It says there, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Here's the purpose. For the perfecting of the saints... For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. One of the specific purposes of the apostles was to edify the church. They were assigned the task of equipping saints to do the work that Jesus Christ himself had trained them to do. So here's these 12 ordinary men. They are the original preachers and the original teachers. Everything spoken outside of them had to be compared to what they said. They were the standard of truth and the standard of sound doctrine for the church at that time. If what others said matched what they said, it was true. And if what they said did not match with the, what the apostles said, it was not true. 
and then realize these men also set the standard of godliness and true spirituality for every person who, accept, who would accept the message of Jesus Christ. They were the first examples of believers, after which all believers who came from them were to pattern their walk. No one knew what Christianity was supposed to look like till these men came along. And Jesus Christ taught them and then uh, displayed that to the ones around them. These men had to live lives of integrity. They had to be men of character so the world would understand what a Christian was supposed to look like and live like. And others were then to match their walk and their talk after these 12 men. And so beyond that, they were also given the gifts of God to do miracles and healings. We read in Luke chapter 24, they were given various gifts, and those gifts were given by Jesus Christ himself to them, and only Jesus Christ up to that point had possessed those gifts. And the purpose of those gifts was twofold. They were given to validate the ministry of the apostles. We realize in uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22, the Bible tells us that Jews seek after a sign. These Jews would need some indication that these apostles had been called by God and were truly God's ministers. And they would need something visible and something tangible to convince them of that. So these 12 ordinary men were given the power to heal and to drink poison and to handle serpents and to do miracles. Also, the people of that time would be convinced of who they were and of the calling that was placed upon them. And second, they were given those gifts to validate the message that they carried. Folks, that message Jesus Christ brought to those Jews was an unexpected message. That is not what they expected. They were expecting might and power and the overthrow of the government. Jesus Christ brought a message of heart change and spiritual transformation, something the Jews were not thinking anything about. They just wanted the Romans off their back. And they thought the Messiah was going to do that for them. Instead, he said, your hearts are wrong. Your hearts need change. You need change on the inside first. And if these apostles were going to be heard, if their message was even going to begin to be understood, they needed some obvious way to validate that message. And the miracles were a way of doing that. Because every miracle they presented also had a spiritual lesson attached to it. Every physical transformation that the apostles performed illustrated the spiritual work that God wanted them to do. And so the message gained credibility because the world watched 12 ordinary men do extraordinary things. And as they watched those fellows work, they began to say to themselves, there's something going on here. (laughs) Something going on that has never happened here before. And many other people listened and responded as a result. All because of the faithfulness of 12 ordinary men. All because of the faithfulness of 12 men simply willing to do what God called them to do. And the people began to believe a message they had never heard before. A message they didn't even expect to hear. Because these 12 men decided to sell all and follow Jesus Christ. The faithfulness of these men, the willingness of these men, in spite of the pressure they faced, produced that message. And God honored them for it. Now, go to Luke again, if you would. And this time, go to Luke chapter 18. I've got you going to a number of places this morning, I realize, but I want you to see these verses. Luke chapter 18. Peter, of course, the one who always speaks up, and we appreciate Peter for that. He asked questions nobody would ever ask. We'd never have the answers had Peter not asked. Luke chapter, Luke chapter 18, look at verse 28. He's speaking to Jesus Christ here, and here's what he says. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. Now, I want you to hear what Peter's saying there. He's making a statement, but in that statement there is great, great concern. Lord, we've left all to follow you. We've put all our eggs in one basket. 
what happens to us when you leave us. Because you tell us you're going to go. We've dedicated everything to you. And now you say you're going to go. Where do we go after that? Who do we turn to after that? We've left everything behind. We've got nothing left because we followed you. When you leave us, what's going to happen to us? Verse 29, the Lord's reply. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come, life everlasting. Here's what Jesus is saying. Men, I know you've left a great deal to follow me. I get that. But I just want you to know, whatever you have left behind is going to be more than made up for when you get to the other side. I didn't ask Steve to sing it this morning, but heaven surely will be worth it all, folks. You may give it all up here. Don't worry about that. You've got so much more waiting for you on the other side. And that was what Jesus Christ said. Jesus Christ says to these men, when I give you the reward for your service that you've done, you'll be blessed infinitely more than anything you ever had to give up. We get so focused on the stuff down here and we hold on to it with all our might. And Jesus Christ says, I don't know what you're holding on to that stuff for. I've got manifold more for you up there if you just let go of it. Folks, let me tell you something, and you may disagree with me on this. That's your right, but you're wrong. <laughs> there is no greater calling than to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is no greater calling in this life than to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't care what work you do on this earth, how significant the world might think it is, what you've accomplished through that thing, and I'm not minimizing that. What I tell you is what God has called us to do here is a work that accomplishes eternal results. Eternal results. The work that I do here for the Lord Jesus Christ is a work that has eternal significance. And just so you get the whole picture, folks, I do the work down here. And when I get over there, God rewards me for doing a work that technically he did through me. (laughs) I can't lose. I cannot lose doing that kind of work. And you can't either. There's no loss to it. There's simply no loss to it. All it takes is willingness here to do what God calls you to. And if you are willing to do that, you benefit here and you benefit when you get over there. And by the way, I want to make this point to you over and over. You'll get sick of hearing it, but I'm going to keep saying it to you. It does not take superhuman ability or superhuman talent to do God's work. All it takes is a willingness to leave whatever we must leave to follow Jesus Christ and do what he's called us to. All it takes. And we see that demonstrated clearly to us through these apostles. They fulfilled the task they were given to do by letting go of what they had before. Now, one other thing I'd like you to see this morning, I want you also to consider the training, the training. When Jesus Christ called these men, and you know this, you know these, your Bible well enough to know, they were not ready to do the Lord's work. I mean, this is rough, raw material here. This is not men who were refined and had it all together. These guys were not ready in any way to do the work God called them to. They were probably as unprepared a group of men as you could ever find. Their failings and their shortcomings seem to overshadow any ability or any potential they had to do the work that God called them to. But they left all to follow the Lord. And the time was short. And Jesus Christ would soon be leaving. And they would have to carry on that work after he left. And so they became disciples. They became full-time followers and learners as Jesus Christ prepared them to do that work. 
and for the months that followed, and I wish I could have been there, and the months that followed, they received a seminary education from Jesus Christ himself. (laughs) What an amazing thought that is. Jesus Christ teaching them himself the principles that he wants them to give out to the world around them. And they would ask him questions and he would give them answers and they'd watch him minister and they'd learn from his example. And Jesus Christ would instruct them and encourage them and patiently guide them in the work that he had called them to do. But we know watching scripture, as you read through your gospels, you are very, very much aware it was not an easy work to do. These fellows were not easily trained or easily taught. They could at times be very slow learners. They were prone to miss the obvious, and Jesus Christ would have to repeat himself over and over and over again. He'd say things to them like, oh, fools, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, Luke 24, 25. He'd say things like, are you also without understanding? Do you not yet understand in Matthew 15, 16 and 17? And for our sake and for the sake of all those who would follow, God did not gloss over their weaknesses or hide their character flaws. He wanted us to know just how completely human they were. (laughs) These chosen by God disciples, completely and totally human. And Scripture shows us why they had such a difficult time uh, learning what Jesus Christ had for them. And so as we close this morning, I want to mention several problems these apostles had. I think it's good for us to see how they struggled and why they struggled. First of all, these apostles lacked spiritual understanding. Many times they had difficulty comprehending exactly what it was Jesus Christ was saying to them. And how did the Lord respond to that? He just kept right on teaching and teaching and teaching. He just persisted in giving them what they needed to know before and after his resurrection. Now, I'm sure God does not have to do this with you because you're all much more spiritual than I am. I am amazed how many times God has to repeat things to me. (laughs) I just don't get it the first time. I mean, just hard as a rock. And so he says, Sabaka, I'll say it to you again, and I'll say it to you again, and I'll say it to you again. And finally, this thick head, it gets through, and I say, oh, is that what you mean? (laughs) Now I get it. And then he says, okay, let's do it. I see the example. That's what the apostles were doing. Are you so stupid, is what he's saying, (laughs) that you can't get it? Well, he says the same thing to me. Jesus Christ is much kinder than that. But if if I were God, I'd be saying to me, Sabaka, are you so stupid that you can't get it? And he says it over and over and over and over, and I finally get it. They lacked spiritual understanding. Secondly, they lacked humility. You remember at the time they spent arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus Christ responded to them by modeling humility. He simply showed them what humility looked like. A Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down to this earth as a servant. Jesus Christ, God himself, as a servant. And he demonstrated servanthood to them because that's what they needed to see, what it meant to be a servant. That's what I need to see. I need to see what it means to be a servant. Number three, they lacked faith. Four times in the Gospels, he says this to them. O ye of little faith. O ye of little faith. And Jesus Christ addressed those faith issues uh, through performing miracles to them. You don't have faith in me? Let me show you something. And he do a miracle for them. And they see this is truly the son of God. Look at what he just did. Those I truly believe those miracles were as much for the disciples as they were for the people. Those disciples are going to follow him. They needed to be 1000 percent convinced that he was who he said he was. And so those miracles were ways for him to show them continually that he was exactly who he said he was. They lacked faith. Number four, they lacked commitment. The soldiers come to rest Jesus Christ in the garden. What's the Bible say? They all 
forsook him and fled. These men who watched him for three and a half years, these men who followed him, these men who saw all those miracles when it came, push came to shove and the threat was there, they all scattered and left him all by himself. Jesus Christ responds to that. We're not going to read it this morning. Read it sometime on your own. He responds to that in John chapter 17 by praying for them and saying, Lord, teach them. Teach them, Lord. Let them see them, Lord. Let them see it again, Lord. Help them, Lord, to see it over and over in that prayer. That's what he's saying. He asked the Father to increase their faith and make them the servants they needed to be, even though at that point they weren't. But he prayed the Father would. And finally, they lacked power. They struggled to do the work when it became challenging, to the point where oftentimes Jesus Christ had to step in and do the work for them. They should have been able to do it for themselves, but he, they couldn't do it, and so he did it for them. How did God respond to that? I'm going to read you a verse. I love this verse. Here's his response. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That verse was given to those 11 apostles, 12 apostles. It was given to them to hear, look, you have a work to do. You're going to need power to do it. I'm going to take my spirit. I'm going to put him inside you. You have all the power you need at any time you need it. And the spirit came and endued them with power in Acts chapter 2 and made them able to do what God had called them to do. Let me ask you something. Why would God choose weak and helpless, incapable men like this to do his work? Why not pick a group of guys who had all this stuff already worked out? Why not pick a group of guys who didn't have all these flaws and all these difficulties and all these liabilities? Why not choose some men who didn't come with all this baggage? I have Jesus Christ on a mountain praying for 10 to 12 hours with the Father and the Holy Spirit of God praying for wisdom as he makes the right choice. And the entire Godhead in on this decision, having the option to choose anybody they want to choose. Completely unlimited choice. At the end of all that, why pick these 12 guys? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because you see, that question, folks, brings us full circle to where we were last Sunday morning when we started. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And look at verse 27. First Corinthians one twenty seven, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Jesus Christ chose flawed, ordinary people like those disciples just to show that with him working through them, anything can be accomplished. Are you weak this morning? Are you foolish this morning? God's chosen you. And he's chosen you because that's exactly who he works through. Here's the testimony of the world. And this is not the testimony of believers. This is the testimony of the world about these disciples. Acts chapter 17, verse 9. It says that when they found, him, when they found them not... They drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, saying, These that have turned the world upside down are also come hither. The world says, These men here, they've turned the world upside down. Twelve 
ordinary guys with no special ability, no special skills. In fact, they were as flawed as flawed could be. And they turned their world upside down for Jesus Christ. Are you flawed this morning? Do you bring liabilities to the work of the Lord? Do you have times when you get totally off track and lose total faith in God? Do you have times when you get totally sidetracked by other things? You are qualified to do God's work. And you can turn your world upside down for Jesus Christ. You personally, not anybody else, look at yourself. Look around. It's you. God can use you to turn your world upside down for Jesus Christ. You say, oh, no, not me. Oh, yeah, exactly you. I'm glad you said that. That makes you even more qualified. (laughs) Here's what God wants us to see this morning, folks. Please hear me as we'll close. If God can do it with them, he can do it with you. If he can use them, he can use me. He can use you. He can use me to turn my world and my community upside down for Jesus Christ. He can use me to be an unmistakable resemblance of Jesus Christ to my world. In the weeks ahead, as we study each of these men, you're going to see how specifically God uses ordinary people. Can God build a church in Perry Township? Can God influence this community with flawed, ordinary people like you and me? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, these 12 show us that we are exactly the kind of people that God wants to use and the kind of people God always has used. All we need to do is submit ourselves and surrender ourselves and make ourselves available to the work of the Lord that he's called us to, and he will do all the rest. Just surrender. Let him take the wheel, and he'll use you the way he wants to use you. Let's pray.